I'm going to dive right in, and, and I, I hope most of you don't get too tired of this, and I don't know how long I'll, I'll be dwelling on it, but we'll feel it for a long time. But my family had a tremendous loss uh, at, the, at the end of last year, and it was a month ago, two days ago, or three days ago that Randy Short passed away. And, of course, we've been thinking about him a lot and mourning and, and, uh, and, and feeling that tremendous loss. But I've been thinking about his life and, and uh, what kind of man he was. And it'll tie into the sermon in just a moment. But one thing I remember, when, when a person passes away, you hear a lot of stories from people. And we receive videos from people thanking, thanking him for his life and celebrating with us, celebrating his life and mourning with us. And lots of texts and cards and, and all kinds of people reaching out. But... One thing I've noticed that's pretty consistent is everybody recognizes that Randy had a love of food. I got a video from a friend that was talking about how he was in a truck with Randy one time pulling through a drive-thru, and uh, he said, he said, what do you want? And Randy said, no, nothing, I'm not hungry. And he said, no, really, get something, Randy. And Randy said, no, I, I, I'm just, I just don't want anything. And a third time, my friend Justin pushed and said, Randy, now I want you to get some food, order something. He said, okay, well, I'll have two double cheeseburgers, a large fry, a, a large Diet Pepsi, and uh and a, a chocolate milkshake. And he, so he went from not wanting food at all to filling his belly pretty good. And my wife, I, I noticed consistently throughout the years that my wife, when we would go to f- restaurants and try something new, she would always, almost without exception, say, my dad would really like this. That was something that was on her mind when we had good food. He would, he would come to mind because he loved good food. And he was, he was a good-natured human being. We heard a story of a missionary in Hong Kong who uh, had lost her father and Randy just just out of the blue shipped her some earrings that he had made out of wood. He had carved them out of wood and created them and shipped them to to her and and just with a little card that said "Love you, Dad" or something something like that. And and the, the missionary was in tears as she told the story because the handwriting looked like her dad's. And even though her dad was gone, Randy Randy, who was everybody's dad, was still around and it meant the world to her. And uh, I remember at my wedding, him sitting down with my brother Danny. And they talked for 45 minutes, it felt like. And that's just how he was. He, he, he could sit down with a total stranger and make them feel good about themselves and ask good questions. And we were just talking last night about some of the people who over the holidays would always sit in the same room in the same location and talk to him for hours. And what are those people going to do now? And his good nature is going to be definitely missed. And, and primarily, it was just love of family. My, you may have seen, if, you, if you're my friend on Facebook, you may have seen we just created some photo albums so that my children would remember their grandpa, and it struck me how easy it was to fill four, five separate photo albums with pictures of him with each individual kid because there's so many pictures. I mean, they're, they're, they're photo albums this thick, and every page has 10 pictures because over the course of my kids' lives, and some of them, one of them is two, four, six, and 12, there's just so many pictures of him holding the kids and being with the kids. And so, so when I think about Randy Short, if I was to describe him, the words that came to my mind were that he was a good-hearted family man, and if, if you had to just summarize him briefly, which is not fair to do to any human being, but that was, that was what I ended up with, and I, I watched uh, the Tom Hanks movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, about Mr. Rogers, and have discovered since that time that Mr. Rogers, I, I, I knew about Mr. Rogers as a kid, but I don't know that I've ever watched a complete show, and he was just kind of hypnotic in his kindness, just the way he would vocalize, and the way he would his intonation, there was something just that draws you in. And I've been reading Mr. Rogers' quotes since then, and I've determined that I really want to be Mr. Rogers. I want to be like Mr. Rogers. I, he, uh, he emulates a lot of what I hope my life will look like. And these are some of the quotes you'll find online. He says, if you could only sense 
how important you are to the lives of those you meet. And he would look people in the eyes and say these things. He would say how important you can be to the people you may never even dream of. You're going to affect lives, and you're going to affect people that, that you have no idea you're going to affect. And, and the next quote kind of tells, tells how. He says, he says, there are three ways to ultimate success in this life. The first is to be kind. The second way is to be kind. The third way is to be kind. And he had such a genteel nature and exuded such kindness and compassion that I think you know, I'm so jaded at this point that I hate to put anybody on a pedestal because it seems like all my heroes fall or, or disappoint me. But from everything you read about Mr. Rogers, he was the real deal, and he was, he was somebody that you would call a kind encourager. I think if those that knew him, if they had to, if they had to summarize his life, those, those might be the words they would use. And Every year, at the beginning of the year, I, I start thinking about what I want my next year to look like. And sometimes when I do that, I'll brainstorm about what I want the overarching view of my life to look like is when I'm dead and gone, you know, however many years that is from now, when people put a slide up about me, Mr. Rogers, they say the kind encourager, what will they say about me? And I brainstorm in Evernote and I'm a little, I'm really actually quite nervous about putting this on the screen and, and, and request that you don't pause it and look into all the details and I've blurred out a little bit of private stuff, but I put that my main life goal, like, like what, when I think about what do I want my life to to be, if, if somebody was to put it on a screen. And it's cheating. It feels like cheating because it's just the words of Jesus is, I want to love God and I want to love people. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's kind of the Christian message in a nutshell of, of what a person's life is supposed to be like. And so, so I've got that written down. And I, I said I want to take the parable of the sheep and the goats seriously. I want to make sure that my life is somehow invested in, in people who are impoverished and people who have, have desperate needs. And... Uh, I want to be, not only do I want to love God and, and love people, but I want to, and, and maybe this is the primary thing, and this is just me throwing up on a page of starting to think about what I want my life to look like, but I, I, want, to, I want to propel people and encourage people to, be, to do that as well, to love God and to love people. And so, so then I write down, what am I good at? And I, I think I'm relatively good at communication and writing and vision casting, and there's a few things that I feel like God has, has blessed me with ability, I suppose. But then it breaks down into a list of, okay, daylight church, okay, my kids, my, my marriage, my finances, my health. If, if I want to be a person who loves God and loves others, how does that affect my daily life? And so you'll see at the top left of this is the 2021 Uber list, and the Uber list is a long list of stuff I want to knock out in 2021 based on this fundamental goal of loving God and loving others. And I, I think, I think when we think about our own mortality and we think about death and we, you know, we look at, at Randy Short's life and we look at Mr. Rogers and we contemplate our own lives, the, the, the impending mortality that we face causes us to think, if, if we'll allow it to. And as we proceed in the book of Philippians, that's what we see happening in Paul's life. So I, I used this slide last week. It's from the Bible Project. I, I flubbed that last week. I couldn't remember who it was from. It's the Bible Project, and I encourage you to watch their videos because they're pretty stellar. But he's writing this letter, and in the beginning of it, he's in prison. He's been visited by a friend from Philippi, and he's in prison, but he's missing his friends, and he's writing to his friends and telling him how much he is affectionate towards them. But then we find the rest of the book, most of the book is vignettes with a purpose or vignettes with a theme. They're, they're little, little points of thought that affect you, but they, they, they kind of tie into one big cohesive unit. And and that theme is this, that you're, you're supposed to see your own story 
as a lived expression of Jesus' story, and that that story is a story of letting go. I can't wait to tackle chapter 2, which is coming up starting next week. Chapter 2 is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, and it talks about Jesus letting go of his godhood and becoming a man, and how that's supposed to affect our attitudes of of letting go and, and not trying to elevate ourselves to any type of throne. But it's this theme of letting go. And we'll continue in Philippians 1, reading what Paul says. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, so he's been imprisoned, has already served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. So all the guards at the prison know at this point, the whole imperial guard has heard about the gospel and why he's there. And it says to all the rest, so all the rest would be the Gentile prisoners, probably, or the Jewish prisoners. So the whole guard and all the rest, he says, have heard about it, that his imprisonment is for Christ. Notice that for Christ. It will become important as we proceed. He says, and most of the brothers, the ones outside the prison, all the, all the Christians all over the place, the, the followers of the way, they would have said back then, have become confident in the Lord by his imprisonment, and they're much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. He says, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He says, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with all full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Notice this, whether by life or by death. Here we get the summation of his life. If we're going to put a frame up about Paul, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So if he's going to live, he's going to do good stuff. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart or to die and to be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so in these vignettes, we're kind of doing a thought and a takeaway each time. And the thought this time is that this, this Jesus thing, this, this gospel concept that Paul has embraced, it changes everything. It becomes the focal point of your life. When, when you encounter Jesus and Jesus becomes the center, you hope that at the end of your life that that slide will read something about him. And sometimes that's a beautiful, it's, it's, it's being a good-hearted family man, sometimes it's being a kind encourager, but in some way, somehow, that the kingdom of Christ will be that epitaph at the end of your life. And in order to really adequately describe what happened with Paul, we're going to do kind of a before and after. We're going to talk about who he was before Christ and who he was after and we're talking about Saul and Paul of Tarsus. A lot of Christians propagate a myth that Saul became Paul, that, that when he encountered Jesus, that, that he, he changed his name. Because there's many examples in Scripture of people who uh, changed their name. So Cephas became Peter and so forth. Abram became Abraham, which is another story in and of itself. But this, this is one that's propagated often that's just pro- probably absolutely not true. Um, Saul, Saul was his Roman name, Paul was his Hebrew name, and he happened to be both, and they were interchangeable. And so, um, but that's who we're talking about, is Saul or Paul of Tarsus. And 
He makes an appearance in Scripture that's pretty shocking and violent. The very first time this Saul appears in the Bible is in the book of Acts at, at the event they call the Stoning of Stephen. And Stephen was, if, if I'm remembering correctly, the first Christian martyr. He was the first follower of Jesus who was killed for his faith. And, and uh, of course, in all the old paintings, he's a white dude with a halo, which just absolutely is not true. Um, but this is, this is an old oil painting of the Stoning of Stephen. And in the Stoning of Stephen... Stephen proclaims to the crowd, he says, Look, I see heaven open, and I see the Son of Man, who is Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And this is the first time Saul appears in Scripture. First time we hear his name. The, the guy who wrote three quarters of the New Testament, this is, this is his intro. He says, At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We have a tendency to whitewash scripture, which we address in here pretty often. And this is a place where people were bashing in the heads of another man with rocks. And this is Saul's introduction. They're laying their clothes at the feet of this man named Saul because Saul was kind of the overseer of the event or the witness to the event who would report on it later that it was done lawfully probably. And so his, his intro is brutal and disgusting. And there's a reason that he would do such a thing. It's because he was what they would call a zealous Pharisee. So the Pharisees were, were religious leaders of his time, and, and zealous we'll get into in just a moment. But, but the word zealous or zeal has, has significant importance when it comes to the life of Jesus. And in Philippians 2, which we'll start tackling next week, we're going we're gonna to jump ahead a little bit of a spoiler alert here. He starts, I'm sorry, in Philippians 3. He starts talking about his credentials. So later on, when Paul is writing the church of Philippi, after brutalizing the church for so long, he starts talking about who he was, what his credentials were, why he was kind of the, the, the up-and-coming religious leader, and why, why he was um, esteemed by men. And he's, he says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he says these words. He says, as to the law of Pharisee, the Pharisees were sticklers for the law. They obeyed every single law to the best of their ability all the time. That's, that's, that's basically the only thing their life was dedicated to was studying the law and making sure they accomplished the law. And he says, as, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, which we'll touch on in just a moment, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is a really, really hefty claim of all the laws, all the hundreds of rules that the Pharisees were supposed to follow. He says, I am blameless. I have done them every one. As to the law, Pharisee, as to righteousness, blameless. But then he uses this word zeal. And zeal, we read it in English as passion. So this is, this is a portion of, of this passage that we just kind of jump right over and give no thought to. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So what, what we read, and I see Bernie Sanders nodding his head in the back, so Bernie, I'm glad you agree with this point. What we read is he was passionate about it, so he persecuted the church. He was passionate, passionate about Judaism, and therefore he persecuted this, this breakaway religion that was kind of an upstart and destroying everything. And it's important we recognize that as, as Paul converted from, he never converted from Judaism to Christianity. He saw Christ as the fulfillment of Judaism. He, was, he didn't believe he was starting a new religion. He believed he was fulfilling his old religion. But this was, he, was a, he was a zealous person. 
And zealous had this particular meaning, and it's tied to an Old Testament story called the zeal of Phineas. And Phineas is a pretty famous Old Testament character, and he really only appears in a, in a short passage, but his zeal became a proclamation or kind of a war cry for what good Jews were supposed to be like in the pharisaical camp. And the story goes like this. It starts off by saying that the people of God or the Jewish people were whoring with the people of Moab, which means they were starting to mix it up and have sex and party and, and, and do all kinds of wild stuff and have children with, with these bad folk, the, the heretics, the pagans that were out there, the priests of Moab, the worshipers of Baal. And so they're the, there's the bad people and there's the good people. And now the good people are mixing it up with the bad people. And at some point, Moses is in front of all the good people and giving a sermon or giving, giving a talk when Phineas, when, when someone else, and I can't, I can't remember their names right now, but it's, it, it's listed specifically what their names were. But this, this Jewish person comes hand in hand with a Moabite woman and goes into their tent for who knows what they were doing in there. We'll, we'll actually find out in just a moment. But does it in view of all the people. And so Moses is trying to say, guys, we got to keep ourselves separate. we got to keep ourselves pure. And this, this upstarter, this rebel was saying, I ain't doing what you want me to do. I'm going to be with this woman. I don't care what you say. And did it right in front of everybody. Well, Phineas picks up a spear in this meeting and in front of everyone goes into the tent and impales both of them. So, so we find that their bodies are together. So we have a pretty good clue of what they were doing. And he runs them both through with one thrust of his spear and they're killed. And then the passage goes on to basically say that, that God was pleased with this effort and ended a plague because of it and, and that this was, this, was, this was the kind of go-getters that we need in the, in the Hebrew camp is kind of, kind of how the passage continues. And so it was the zeal of Phineas that propelled the thinking of Jewish people for quite some time. And so when we say that Saul was a zealous Pharisee, we don't just mean he was passionate. We mean he wanted to destroy and kill those who disagreed, those who would corrupt the camp, the bad folk, the pagans, were deserving of death. And it's shown by this, ups, this, this person, Stephen, being brutalized and bludgeoned to death in front of him as he witnessed the death. This is, this is, this is the kind of, I would describe him as heartless human being that Saul was. And it's interesting, the word Pharisee probably comes from this Hebrew word, perishim, which means separated ones. The Pharisees were just above everybody else. They were lawful as to righteousness, blameless. They were holy people who obeyed the law. They were people who would run you through with a spear if you disagreed and if you were going to corrupt their religion. That's who Paul was. That's the before. But then something happened. There's a passage in the book of Acts that we'll read a portion of in just a moment that talks about him basically, both literally and figuratively, being knocked off his high horse. He just thought he was this great human being honoring God with his zeal of passionately killing and murdering these new, these new religious fanatics that were destroying his faith, killing the bad guy, killing the pagan, locking them up in prison. And God literally knocked him off his horse. And in Acts chapter 9, it says this. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, that's Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. It says, As he neared Damascus on this journey to murder Christians or to lock them up in prison, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And the passage goes on to continue to, to show us that this was Jesus saying, you got it all wrong, pal. You're not the superhuman religious dude that you think you are. There's a lot wrong with you. Let's, get, let's start this purification process. Let's, let's, let's make things right and show you what God... Let, let's show you what God is actually like because you see him wrong. He is seen in the figure of Jesus. And so when we go back to Philippians, you'll see him saying, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Paul was knocked off his horse by Christ and, and wanted to be consumed with Christ after this moment. And Christ was not one to run people through with spears. He was one to hang on a cross so that people could be free. And so you see this absolute revolution that occurs in Paul's life. In Romans chapter 1, it says, We have received grace and apostleship, notice this, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the pagans, among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also were the called of Jesus Christ to all who believed in God in Rome, called as saints. So now the Romans, the ones who were off limits, who were dirty dogs that they wanted nothing to do with, that he, he, he considered outside the faith and inescapably outside the faith. There was, there was no hope for the Gentile because God was the, was, was the God of the Jewish faith. And now all of a sudden he becomes the leading representative to the pagans. So he goes from this zealot that wants to kill everybody that, that corrupts the faith to an all-embracing hands-out person that says, God loves you and you and you and you and you, and I was wrong. And that's what we find in his life. I've been reading N.T. Wright's magnum opus, Paul, recently. It's a 450-page tome that I'll probably be jumping into here and there because I talk about what I'm reading and what I'm thinking. But he says it in this. He says, the idea of a single community across the traditional boundaries of culture, gender, and ethnic and social groups was unheard of. Unthinkable, in fact, but there it was. A new kind of family. Its focus of identity was Jesus. Its manner of life was shaped by Jesus. So now, all of a sudden, one who... And we see traces that this was a journey for Paul from when it came to slaves and when it came to women and when it came to the Gentiles. He was, he was certainly on a journey that we get to watch throughout the unfolding of the New Testament. But now, all of a sudden, those who could not reach God can be reached by God. None of us can reach God, Paul would say eventually, but we can all be reached by God, all. To the point where Paul eventually said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one. Here's those words again that you see repeated continually in Christ Jesus. So before you've got this zealot willing to kill for his faith, willing to kill to keep corruption out, willing to violently murder to keep his faith pure. And now you find him in prison reaching out to his Gentile, former, he, he would say former pagans that have embraced Jesus and come in Christ. And so at one point his, his credentials are, I'm the, I'm, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the Roman citizen of Roman citizens. I, I was circumcised on the right day of the right tribe in the right place and I have obeyed all the rules and I have hated all the right people that I'm supposed to hate. And then you find him later, so that's the before. Now you read his after, which is in 2 Corinthians 6. I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. This is his new credentials. So th this, is, this is the new person. 
He says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. He goes on from, I am the king of religion. I have it all together to I got nothing. And somehow in having nothing and somehow embracing a life of persecution and being hated by his former friends, somehow being in Christ and letting the Christ of the cross, the, the, the Jesus who, who died, not a, not a king who conquered like we think of conquering, but the king who conquered by dying and by letting go, now somehow Paul is a different man. And so we go back to when he, it's super interesting in Philippians, when he talks about his credentials, he says, if, anything else, if anyone else thinks they have confidence for the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is what the new Paul says after that. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. The old, the old Paul, the old person, saw value in personal religious piety and perfection. The new Paul sees that all as a bunch of junk that just needs to go by the wayside. Not important at all. What's important is to be consumed with this crucified Savior and for Christ to fill you. So now when we read this, this passage, some things jump out. When we read this passage from Philippians 1, some things pop out at us. He says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And that gospel is awangelio in, in Greek. And it's the same word that we get our word evangelism from or evangelical from. And it's, it's tied to the concept of bringing light into a place of darkness. But awangelio is is basically good news. It means, it means I have information that is great. And he says now, so this, this, this guy that was going around brutalizing people now says, I got something good to tell you. Nobody was happy when Paul showed up. None of the Christians were excited when Saul was around. The first Saul, the, the Saul who had not been born again, who had not started over in life, who had not started pursuing a different destiny. But he was dedicated to this good news. And then he goes on to say that, so he's excited that, that the whole prison has heard about the good news. Now he's, he's also really excited that now all his Christian friends outside of the prison are propagating what he calls speaking the word, which is logos or logon in this passage. And the logos is, is kind of like the message that comes out of a person. So, so ultimately, my, my take on it has always been, if 
if at the end of your days someone could play back a soundtrack of your life and, and, and allow you to verbalize everything, that, that summation of that pile of words would kind of be your logos. It, it would tell everything about you. If someone, if it, Scripture seems to indicate that, we're, that, that our words and how we spoke and the things that came out of our mouth are going to be kind of tantamount on Judgment Day, that, that the, the logos of, of our souls is going to be exposed and, and shown, to, shown to be, shown the reality of. And that's what this is saying here. And so when, when it talks about the logos of God, if you, go to, if you go to the Gospel of John and you go to 1 John, it talks about Jesus is the logos. So, so often Christians today talk about the Word of God and what they mean is the pages of Scripture. And there's reasons for that that make, make good sense. But Scripture itself refers to the logos, the pile of words, the message that God has sent to the world as a person. And his name is Jesus. And so the message of God to the world is Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying he's excited about. He's saying, now my friends aren't scared to talk about this message of God, this this thing that has occurred, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the message of God. Jesus is the, if we want to hear the voice of God, if we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. And now Paul is really excited because his friends are doing so without fear. And he talks about, he's got some friends that preach selfishly and in and, and, and rivalry with him. And he says, he, he kind of hand waves them. He says, I'm not going to waste too much time on them because he says in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, here it is again, Christ is proclaimed. The risen, crucified Savior is talked about. He says, and in that, I rejoice. He continues, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He says, I'm, he talks about how he's not ashamed, but he's with full courage now. As always, here it goes, Christ will be honored in my body, whether I live or die. This is not a person grasping life and grasping power, grasping control. This is a person who has let go. A person who's let go of control and said, whatever happens to me, meh. It's all about Christ. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He doesn't, if, he, if he lives, he's going to live for Christ. If he dies, his death will hopefully honor Christ, all that matter, all that's left on the page, Christ, Christ Jesus. And so the takeaway, the thought is that this changes everything. It's also the takeaway this week, is that this, this risen Savior, and, and if you go back to the Evangelio, Galio, if you, if you go back throughout Scripture and you study that word and you find every instant of it in, inside the New Testament, you're going to find almost all the time, it says something along the lines of, Christ is risen, this is the gospel. Christ is risen, this is the gospel. Evangelio is the gospel. Now, there's, there's certain times when a description of the gospel talks about what that information means to us and how it transforms us, and that's, that all kind of ties into the, the big picture of this good news. But the good news is simply this, Christ is risen. Death has been defeated. God has revealed himself, this, this pile of words, this message from God that tells us what he's like and who he is. Ze the zeal of Phineas has been discounted. That's not who God is. There's, there's something off about that story. We don't have time to go into 
well, then how do we interpret Scripture today? That's not my goal. My goal is to say that Paul was that guy until he encountered Christ. He thought other ideas, other concepts had to be squashed and destroyed until he discovered Christ. He thought the bad people deserved what they were getting and should, should be damned until he discovered Christ. Christ changed everything. And as he said earlier, he said, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. This is, this is a different passage where he's saying the same thing. There's no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ. You see it? You see it? Once, once you start reading Paul and start examining what he has to say, it's nearly monotonous. Christ, 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 Christ. No longer law, no longer rules, no longer hate, no longer animosity, no longer, sep- no longer am I the separated one in a certain sense. But instead, Christ is all and is in all, in everyone, everywhere. He sees it. And so when we talk about Randy Short, we see a good-hearted family man. When we talk about Mr. Rogers, we see a kind encourager. And when we talk about Paul, I don't know exactly what he would want on the screen, but somehow it's tied to this thought that he would want to be found in Christ and gain him. He would want to gain Christ and be found in him. Christ, Christ, Christ. He would say it's all that matters is to tie in to this logon of God, this logos of God, this message of God that has been sent to the world in Jesus and that Jesus is where we see our path forward. And so my parting question to you is, who you? And that's just bad grammar for what about you or who do you want to be? What what do you want on your page? At the end of life, kind encourager sounds pretty nice. Good-hearted family man sounds sounds great. And those all tie into the kingdom of God concept and the Jesus concept. I, I think Jesus is in those descriptions. But what about you? I would encourage you to sit down with a piece of paper and vomit on it like I try to do every year, is sit down and say, what do I want my life to be? And as you do that, then that will start shaping what you want today to be, what you want to do today, who you want to call today, who you want to reach out today, who you want to sacrifice for today. And somehow, some way, tie into what my friend said last year, that if the Christ story is true, what else matters? There's nothing else on earth that matters aside from he has risen and the fact that he has risen and death is conquered allows us to experience something similar. See, that's what happened to Saul, is the old Saul died, and a new Saul was born. That's the gospel. Death, rebirth. You can die, whatever that page would have said yesterday, it doesn't have to say tomorrow. Because of Christ. Not because of you, not because you can pull up your bootstraps and get her done. It's because Christ desires to come in and change you. And there's nothing else in this entire world that matters.